John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 211.PR2306, certificate number 6594, the Cheesesteak War. What's up, Doug? Uh, two is with me. Can I get one of them uh, wrapped up to go? Have you visited the great city of Philadelphia? I have been to Philadelphia twice. I am not in West Philadelphia, born and raised. No. Clearly not. But I was there for an event at UPenn and again speaking at a thing. So I've done a day out of Philadelphia tourism. How do you feel about the song Philadelphia Freedom by Elton John? Uh, it's about Billie Jean King. Is that true? Hmm. I think. Am I just making that up? Shoot. I don't know. <laughs> that's a, that's a, I, when I, was, I hear a catchy pop song on the radio, here's what I do. I think, what lesbian is this probably about? Right. It's always going to be something. And then I just guess, is it Ellen? Is what, it Gertrude Stein? What about, uh, what about You're So Vain? What, what lesbian uh, famous person is that about? <laughs> <laughs> you're So Vain uh, is about uh, Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> oh, Tallulah Bankhead. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. Well, Philadelphia, I... Have you spent time there? I have quite a bit. Yeah, uh, it's a big rock and roll town. Have you run up the steps at the museum? I have. And did you pump your hands in the air no, like Rocky? No, I didn't do that. I'm not like a Rocky super fan. I ran up the stairs at the Philadelphia Art Museum because I I needed to get up there I faster. Just, I just sprinted up the stairs because I was it was really urgent that I needed to see the art. I was well. I was down at the bottom. There was somebody at the top waiting for me. I ran up the stairs. They were like, "You did it! You ran up the stairs!" And I was like, "I just was trying to get up the stairs." I just fast. wanted to see the art. Yeah. If there's like uh, paintings with bowls of fruit and stuff, don't stand in my way because I, I am just going to make a beeline for the quickest door that gets me into those paintings. I have a good friend whose wife is a descendant. Of Rocky Balboa. Is descendant from a very prominent Philadelphia family. And they have a wing of the museum where her family's private art collection is now on display. Wow. And so, and I'm friends with her and she's a delightful person. And so we were visiting the museum in order to see her aunts and uncles like Monet's and Manet's. I'm always impressed when people do that. Because here's what it says. They used to have these one-of-a-kind million-dollar items in their house. Yeah. And they were just like, you know, I don't need this in my house. Like, they just Marie kondo and all that stuff just into a building across town and let everyone see it. A-plus. Good job, rich people. Yeah. That's, you know, rich people, sometimes they really co- – I think there were some tax liabilities. I think it was hard Oh, is to, that true? Yeah, I think it was hard to just have, like, your – 
$20 million painting over the fireplace. It was, it was assessed maybe. <laughs> like, like when they do, <laughs> when they do your property taxes, the guy's yeah. like, is that a real Matisse? Yeah. Oh, and he's got a checkbox for that. Yeah. Real Matisse X. X. Yeah, the message of the show, as always, is that, you know, rich people are great and are always doing a solid. You know, if it weren't for rich people, what would the rest of us do? <laughs> but Philadelphia has always, we've, I've played there uh, in every band I've ever been on, the, uh, been in that's toured. And uh, Philadelphia has its, um, has a remarkable appeal, kind of. It's a, a gritty town, grittier than New York or a lot of cities on the East Coast. Uh, that's because that's where Gritty is from. It's where Gritty is from. That's why he's called Gritty. It's his titular adjective. And you're old enough to remember the American Bicentennial. Maybe that's what Philadelphia Freedom is about. Maybe it's not about any lesbians. It's about tall clipper ships. Philadelphia Freedom came out certainly during that during that time, right? Isn't it a 1976 song? I think of it as being very bicentennial oriented. That was really a peak for Philadelphia. The mid seventies were when everything was all about Philadelphia. It was. Think about the 76ers. I mean, their basketball team is named after, um, not the bicentennial after the <laughs> 1776. Dr. J was such a fan <laughs> of the bicentennial. He like, he's like, oh, those tall ships. They're but, so tall. But if you think about their their logo, it's very much a sort of bicentennial graphic. And that was much smarter. Like San Francisco named a team after 49ers, which was, this, that would be like Seattle naming a team after Amazon tech people. Like they named their whole team after like people tooth, that toothless old men who flooded in. Mobbed their area. Uh, yeah. If, you know, ruined everything, failed and left a year later. Mob, so the 76ers, mob. that's 200, that's 200 years of, uh, of tradition there. Good job. Yeah. And it's a, uh, it was, I think in some ways, Philadelphia's, the, the beginning of the resurgence of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a blue collar town, a working class town after World War II fell into a kind of precipitous decline and maybe kind of risked becoming one of those blown out American cities that as the, the port saw less and less traffic just became a sort of Detroit of the East. Uh, Even but, going to Philadelphia in the 90s, it did not have that vibe. No. And and I think the the recognition that Philadelphia played such a major role in the early Rock. days of the United States. And the Rocky films. The original Constitutional Congress, you know, the, um, the they got, Liberty They got Bell. the bell. They yeah. got the hall. Yep. They got the mint. They have a lot of really patriotic stuff. They do. And it's strangely kind of all... Uh, in a pretty small area in Old Town, Philadelphia, and the rest of the city was urban renewed within an inch of its life. It just shows you how small cities used to be. You know, like if you're in New York and you go above 70th Street, like none of that was there in the entire 19th. You know, those was during the Civil War, that was cow pastures or something. Right. Same with London. Everything's like so close together just because cities used to be the size of uh, mall parking lots. And fi even finding Old Town in Philadelphia is a little bit of a challenge because there are freeway on-ramps and off-ramps all around it. I mean, it's very much a, it's a very compact little area. How are the crowds there when you, you're, because you've performed in front of Philadelphians. Oh, well, I mean, Philadelphia has a... Because they're mean. They're, you know, these are the sports, I don't know about their music fans, but the sports fans are the ones who throw batteries at Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. All the cities in that constellation of East Coast cities, Baltimore, um, D.C., Philadelphia, Camden, you know, they're, they're all tough little towns. Hey, yo. Del Delaware. Hey, is play a, some Indie Rock. Hey. Delaware seems like it should be like kind of a nice sailboaty preppy place, but Del Delaware is pretty tough, pretty rough. 
but the fans, I mean, they're, they're, they're rock and roll people. They are, um, they're not haters when they're like there to see music. They're true. Like, uh, they're not the same people projectile vomiting at flyers games. No, no. And in fact, like playing in Detroit, I've seen audiences turn against bands in Detroit and just like the vibe in the room get really sour. I'm sure it happens everywhere, but I've never had that experience in Philadelphia. It's like the city of brotherly love. It's literally the name of the city, brotherly love, the city of. But that's centuries old. I mean, it's hard to maintain, you know, it's hard to keep a marriage lively for 50 years, much less keep love in a, in an Eastern seaboard city for centuries. Well, now let's find that out. Centuries old, huh? The city. Am I going to be wrong? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Does the Chamber of Commerce in 1967 of decide it was life. after the Legionnaires' disease thing? They needed a new branding that was not come to Philadelphia and get Legionnaires' disease. It just it doesn't seem like the nickname you would give that city in the 20th century to me. Yeah, it feels like. It, I mean, if you're rebranding for um, it doesn't for seem an like, LGBT audience, maybe it doesn't seem like William Penn would have said, "Hey, you know what we should call this place?" Well, here's the thing: it comes from the Greek. Right. Philadelphia was originally, I think, Amman, the capital of Jordan. And it literally means... Brotherly love. Well, I mean, Philos has to mean love, right? Right. Oh, is that true? Adelphia means... Yeah, brother. Of brothers? Well, there you go. It's not just 200 years, it's 2,000 years. 2,000 years or longer. Of loving your brother. Well, so, Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia is one of those American cities that has a very unique culture. Like, a, it's a city-state, in a way. And... um we saw it in the 2000s when New York became too expensive. A lot of uh, Williamsburg hipsters started to move to Philadelphia, trying to colonize it as the new bedroom community. And were they all immediately just beaten up with batteries? Uh, it was. Uh, it was a little bit of a tough sell. I think there were. I, I know a lot of people in the music business that moved down to Philadelphia and and got themselves a sort of townhouse and felt like a, like a cheap brownstone and thought that they were pioneering a thing and it was only a matter of time before everyone followed them to this new wonderful place they'd discovered, it was this like, little town called Philadelphia. It's like, it's like Portland. It's like people leaving the Bay Area or LA or Seattle, they go to Portland. Right. And it didn't really, I mean, Philadelphia was too fast, too furious, too big, too, <laughs> too big to fail. Too brotherly, too love. And couldn't, uh, the, the hipsters of Williamsburg didn't really make a dent in the Philadelphia culture, but it, it has a very, very strong regionalism. You know, they say that the, the accent of people in Baltimore is the most difficult accent to get right. If you're kind of a student of regional accents, when you watch the wire and you can tell there are actual Baltimore types who have been re who have been cast as characters on the show. Yeah. Like you, you're like, I thought I could handle Eastern U.S. dialect or African-American vernacular English, but I have no idea what Snoop is saying. Like, yeah. it's literally 10 square miles where it's a whole different language. And Philadelphia has a very similar sort of super concentrated culture. And we don't know this, by the way, in the West Coast. Like, I'm very insulated from those little regional city cultures growing up out here. Like, I didn't know people in Pittsburgh said yins for you until just a few years ago. And it blew my mind that they had just invented a pronoun and me here on the West Coast had not been notified. Yeah. Do you think if you were talking to someone from San Francisco, you would be able to tell by their the way they spoke that they were from San Francisco? Yeah, we don't really have it. Maybe because the distances are bigger. I did see uh, Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington in our time, is contemplating a run for the presidency, an important political office of our time. And he was on TV and I saw a lot of people on Twitter being like, Maybe Nate Silver was like, is this how they talk in Washington state? 
it's kind of like Bay Area meets Minnesota. And so I guess maybe to them, we are just as exotic. Yeah. But, but I had always thought that Pacific Northwest had some perfectly neutral American accent. But it certainly isn't that the accent changes between Bellingham and Tacoma. Exactly. And that does happen. And it's very true on the East Coast. Philadelphia, it was a melting pot city, just like most of the cities on the, on the East Coast. Uh, but there's a very, very strong Italian contingent by the second half of the 20th century, by the, by the 20th century, right? This was a city where uh, the Italian migration of the late 19th century, really like Pennsylvania was one of the major locations where Italian people settled. They love Quakers. They're, they're sitting in Sicily and they're like, there's not enough Quakers here. Yeah, where that's right. We go? They said, brotherly love is what we're <laughs> about. Where do we go? We don't want to go to, a, to, to, I mean, we've been to York. It's no Mama good. Mamma mia, il <laughs> amore di fratelli. <laughs> so, and particularly like the dock working culture of Philadelphia. And it was a strong, there was a strong Irish migration there. There was a vibrant Jewish community. I mean, it's a, it's a melting pot city. Yeah, that's, that, I thought Mick from the Rocky movies was Irish, but then when they show his funeral, he's Jewish. Yeah. That's how I know there's an Irish and a Jewish community there because Mick somehow straddles both. Yeah, that's right. Well, Mick was short for Mickelstein. <laughs> like an idiot, I thought he was like <laughs> Michael O. Moskowitz, but no. So it, the Italian and Catholic influence in Philadelphia, like, and in Pittsburgh, I mean, Pittsburgh was a mining town. Philadelphia was a seaport. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it contributed to this regionalism, this uh, this sort of insular and self-recapitulating culture there. And it, uh, it one of the ways in which that manifests itself was in the local cuisine. And you don't really think of Philadelphia when you think of cuisine. I think of them when I think of cream cheese. That's right. It's right there in the name. Do you remember there used to be this Philadelphia cream cheese commercial where they would show uh, cream cheese being lavished in slow motion on a bagel? And then they started playing Start spread in the news. No, and I don't. well, it I was incredibly this. annoying to me because that's New York, New York. Yeah, a different city altogether, and it should not be in a Philadelphia cream cheese commercial. No, but there are other Philadelphia foods besides. Name some other Philadelphia, Philadelphia foods. cream cheese, right? Uh, six raw eggs in a glass every morning. <laughs> that's that's the only thing Rocky eats. I'm glad that Rocky is your like one door into Philadelphia. There is also uh, Will Smith. Okay, that's and, right. You've quoted him already in this show. And that's about that's it. That's it, Rocky and the Fresh Prince. There's the AIDS movie, but I don't remember much cuisine in the Tom Hanks movie, that, Philadelphia. That does, it's it's called Philadelphia, isn't it? Or the Philadelphia Project? Phil- Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Project. <laughs> Denzel Washington is like, I have a project. I'm going to get this guy acquitted. What are the great, are, wait, first of all, are there other Philadelphia cultural points that I'm missing? Who are the great Philadelphia musicians? Well, the, actually, the Philly sound is one of the sure. great sort of soul music, sure. soul uh, music sounds of the AM radio era. Uh, Hall & Oates are from Philadelphia. I mean, isn't there even a, uh, there's some kind of team named for Philadelphia soul music, the Philadelphia soul play arena football. There you go. So not only did they give us all that amazing soul music, yeah. they gave us an indoor football team. It's strange because it really is America's, I mean, we think of Chicago as America's second city, but on the East Coast, Philadelphia is is a companion and a competitor with New York City in a way that we, that the New York-Boston rivalry is so ingrained. But Boston only has about 700,000 people. Boston is about the same size as Seattle, whereas Philadelphia is twice as big. People in Boston are just 
loud and disagreeable enough for a city three times the size. That's right. And Boston has, uh, Boston is an outlier geographically, right? There's very little, there, there are no big cities north of Boston. So Boston is one bookend of the American East Coast. Philadelphia is right in the heart of it. And so it's a city that's, there's a lot of through traffic. And it's got the legacy of when it was the largest city. I mean, at the, at the time of the first U.S. census, New York and Philadelphia were essentially the same size. Right. They, were the, the, they were the big cities. And before that, Philadelphia probably bigger. So they've still got that cultural legacy. So a lot of the things that we think of about New York, the Irish and the Jews and the Italians colliding culturally, the mafia on the waterfront, all of these sort of American identity bubbles or uh, or stories that we think of as making up the story of uh, the United States. That was all happening also in Philadelphia and in- Just like on a 60% scale. Well, in a lot of ways, maybe even more, it was even more true in Philadelphia than in New York. It's just that New York got to tell the story of itself in a way that Philadelphia didn't, it wasn't also an entertainment hub or wasn't also, didn't have a Broadway that it could lionize its own history in the same way that New York did. And that's why we don't know the stories. That's why we don't know the stories as well. Yeah. But it was true of Philadelphia and those story, the Philadelphia stories have percolated into the American experience in ways that we maybe often think of it as coming from New York, but it really also, or maybe even more so came from Philadelphia. And one of those is the story of Italian food. Um, a lot of Italians coming into the United States were trying to like every immigrant group, trying to cobble together a living, trying to figure out a way to take what they knew back in the old country and revise it for their new home. Uh, Italians were were famous stonemasons. They often were employed building churches or, I mean, it's why so many East Coast cities have such beautiful stone architecture from that period because labor was cheap and artisans were very skilled. But there's always, there's always a place for an immigrant family to make a living selling food. Food is universal and everybody comes to their new country with some of their old food traditions. And I wonder, so I wonder how long it takes for the people who are already there to catch on, you know, like sometimes it takes decades or longer for anybody to come out from outside the neighborhood to come in and be like, they've got this thing called pizza. I well, mean, at first they're doing it just for them. It is a progression and, and throughout the east from Portland, Maine all the way down to Virginia, the hoagie sandwich, the hero, the submarine sandwich, sort of generated spontaneously in 10 different locations. That's funny. The, that, uni the universe produced, like it was just time for the, the culture needed long sandwiches. Yeah, there was a variety of names. Because it was kind of a, um, an amalgam of some Italian traditions, a sort of deli or a a uh, cold cut sandwich, mm -hmm. a, a long piece of bread. It's portable because it's, it's in the bread. Right. So you can take it to your work side. It's or cheap your, and working class. Yeah. And you see the, the names of the sandwiches kind of derived from these the different sort of spawning points of the, the hero sandwich. So Yeah, so I don't know which name is which place. I mean, I, I get that there's five or six names, but like – to this day, would it be wrong if I was in New Jersey and said grinder or whatever? Or like, what, what are the right names? So like a grinder, a grinder was a nickname for a dock worker in Boston. Huh. 
And so the sandwich was named after the consumer, <laughs> right? Like the, it was, it, they were grinders that came to get the sandwich. And so the sandwich ended up being called. What if grinder. all food was named after the consumer? <laughs> I'll take three hipsters, please. Right. The kale coming up. Right. Avocado toast. It, it's natural to think that the hero sandwich is derived from the gyro sandwich. But in fact, that isn't the case. But in America, we had never really even heard of gyros until the 60s. Uh, yeah, I feel like I was not aware of Greek food at all, not living in a major city with a Greek diner until even later than that. In the 80s, it was like, pita, what is this? Right. Well, and, and it's a gyro. I mean, you know. It, <laughs> I think people still say gyro. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of sort of argument about where the hoagie sandwich came or where the name, the, the name hoagie, hoagie sandwich. Um, is it hoagie Carmichael? No. Oh. Uh, one of the guesses, I think maybe the most popular derivation story is that, um, that there is a shipyard called the hog Island shipyard in Philadelphia and that they were hog hoggy sandwiches made for the the dock workers there on Hog Island, and it got sort of morphed into hoagie. And to this day, hoagie is still a, a Pennsylvania term for that sandwich. You'd, mm -hmm. you'd hear that more than sub or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, the submarine sandwich, obviously it looks like a submarine. And there was a, an Italian gentleman in, in Maine, I think, who saw the submarines. There was a like a famous submarine in dry dock or something that he saw and said, that's a spicy meatball. It's just like my sandwich that I'm inventing. <laughs> the toothpick is like the periscope. There's some speculation that um, there there was a term of uh, called on the hoke, which was a way of describing somebody that was on the skids or like if you're down uh, on your luck, you're on the hoke. You're on the hoke, and deli owners in Philadelphia at the time would give this sort of sandwich made out of scraps to hobos that were coming through that were on the hoke and it ended up being called a hoagie. So hoagie's the mystery one. Yeah, I mean, they all, they all have a lot of different origin stories and every 15 miles there's somebody that claimed to have invented the Italian sandwich. Well, that's what always happens. You get, you get multiple claimants to who the inventor is. Right. And people must genuinely believe this. Like they heard dad or grandpa or uncle uh, Tony or whatever say that we were the ones who came up with it and it's come down in family lore, but it's come down in 10 different families lore. Well, and it, it, it happens in, in the case of a lot of great inventions. It's why the Nobel Prize often is awarded to three or four different people who were working independently. Uh, it's a phenomenon where uh, a great idea will, will spontaneously generate in three different places. It's just time for calculus or for a lot of salami on a piece of bread. Right. The theory of evolution, you know, and we, we end up naming it after somebody, the person that best promulgated it, but not necessarily the first person to think of it. Especially for food, where there's kind of a limited range of what people like. Right. You know, people are already eating salami, people are already eating bread. It's not surprising that somebody would put the salami on the bread. But the cheesesteak sandwich, which is maybe Philadelphia's most famous culinary export. I was holding off, but yes, even I knew that a cheesesteak was... It's Philly's a, great gift to American and, food. And in most places that are not Philadelphia, cheesesteak sandwiches are often just called Philly cheesesteak sandwiches. If you say that in Philadelphia, I think that they'll throw a battery at you. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, like when I go to, to China and if I'm looking for a Chinese restaurant, I just say restaurant. Right. You don't have to say Chinese. Do you have food? <laughs> if you, if, that's why when you're in Paris, you just say fries. Can I, do you have fries? <laughs> 
When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout but the philadelphia cheesesteak sandwich or cheesesteak sandwich does have a point of origin that most people don't dispute. It has an origin story that's pretty compact. And although it, the sandwich then proliferated and became kind of the, the sandwich that dominates Philadelphia sandwich culture to the point of excluding other kinds of sandwich. Just try to get a tuna melt within city limits. It actually like started, on, started in a place on a day. And it was in the early 30s in an Italian neighborhood, very close to this enormous Italian market, the uh, an outdoor market there in Philadelphia. Uh, two brothers by the name of Pat and Harry Olivieri had a hot dog stand. And they were selling hot dogs, which of course is one of the great American foods and maybe the ultimate working class lunch. Probably hot dogs, not super, they're probably newish as well. That came, you know, sausages came with German immigrants, but the idea of eating a a sausage on a roll is probably only 30 or 40 years old at this point, right? Well, I mean, sausage, if you go to Europe now and buy a sausage, you'll be given it with a roll. They still haven't perfected the technology of putting a sausage in a roll. <laughs> uh, you, I feel they, like I could just show them. Like the, the guy running the cart, I could be like, come over here. Here's the problem. <laughs> you often get a long sausage and a very compact roll. I would get in this conversation with people in Europe all the time. Why not make the roll longer or the hot dog smaller? And they would counter, why do you sell hot dogs in packages of eight and rolls in packages of 10? They knew this American stand-up comedy trope? (laughs) (laughs) I can't answer. But at this moment in 1933 in Philadelphia, Pat and Harry Olivieri selling and eating hot dogs, one day Pat got tired of hot dogs. And he, whoa, if you're tired of hot dogs, you're tired of life. Right. But if you're selling hot dogs and you're eating hot dogs, you're around hot dogs. If you're living a hot dog centric life. There's always a tendency of restaurants to go a little further afield because you you know, you get bored Yeah, and, and that's when Wendy's adds baked potatoes. And I mean, that first time you put on a pot of water and start boiling some hot dogs, you think, oh, there's nothing that smells better than a pot of hot dogs. But I bet is hot dog water your preferred smell? <laughs> no, just no. dab some of that behind your ears. I'm and a child of the seventies. I like to smell leaded gasoline. As a child of the seventies, I like boiled hot dogs in mac in Kraft macaroni and cheese. See, you were a hot dog and macaroni and cheese guy. I was not. Did you put ketchup on macaroni and cheese? You no, but I will sometimes put in a can of tuna. No, no, no. Hamburger, ground beef in macaroni. and cheese. You put ground beef in macaroni. and ground cheese? Ground beef and pepper in macaroni and cheese is the greatest. 
That is the best macaroni and cheese. That should be called a Roderick cheesesteak. An Anchorage cheesesteak. Yeah. Actually, I have, I'm now thinking about how that would taste in a bun, and I think it would taste really good. <laughs> I feel like there is a new trend for just putting mac and cheese in more carbs. Like, put yeah. it in a bun. I was at Disneyland last week, and we had mac and cheese in a cone. No. I protest. It's another thing when you're eating mac and cheese, you're like, why isn't there more bread no. around this? Well, but I am thinking if I put a little macaroni and a lot of hamburger and put it in a bun... I think, we, I think we might be onto something. Macaroni casseroles need to come back. I but agree. let's pause for a moment our own invention and uh, as futurelings like bite into their giant macaroni hamburger hoagies. They already know our, our venture was a failure. Let's look back to the origin story of our sandwich. Uh, Pat sent Harry to the market and said, get me some steak. I'm tired of eating hot dogs. I want to have a steak sandwich. He's doing well. The business is yeah. doing well. He can, he can uh, afford some steak and not just hot dog. And Harry brings the steak back and Pat chops it up, chops it up with some onions or whatever, puts it on a hot dog bun, starts eating it. They must and have a grill there. They must be, they must be grilling their sausages. They're grilling, grilling dogs, yeah. Maybe boiling them, maybe grilling them. Those were the two options. This is a long time before anybody put cheese on sandwiches. Or oh, they, they, interesting. There, there wasn't any cheese in this story at the time. You don't put cheese on a hot dog, that's for sure. I do. I put cheese on every hot dog I have if, I, if there's cheese available. I get those weird gross hot dogs that have cheese in them. Oh, I don't want those. <laughs> no, but if, but if you're making a hot dog in a microwave and you put cheese on it. Did the hoagie, the grinder, the sub already exist at this time? Was there a tradition of, uh, of long meat in rolls? They were all sort of, this was the great period. The late 20s, early 30s was, was the era of the rise of the hoagie sub grinder the depression, Hero. the depression must have been real big for, yeah. for long bread, heavy, portable food, huh? Yeah. It was a cheap and filling way to get some food on your break from the docks, which was, you know, you probably spent most of your lunch hour smoking cigarettes and drinking schnapps or Tweeka or whatever. It's a grinder's uh, life. That's the grind for the grinder. But so Pat's sitting there eating his brand new sandwich and a cab driver, taxi driver rolls up to the hot dog stand, wanting a, I guess, his daily hot dog. And he sees Pat eating this steak sandwich and says, hey, that's pretty good. Will you make me one? It must and have smelled great. I bet it did. Because a cheesesteak is one of those foods that is delicious, but disproportionately just smells amazing. Smells for amazing. It's how Cinnab it's the whole Cinnabon business model is if your food smells even better than it tastes. Yeah. You pump it out into the world and, and your customers flock to the counter. You have fake steak sandwich scented esters that you <laughs> that you boil and in, flood the block with. In this case, Pat didn't have enough to make a second sandwich. Oh. And so he gave half of his sandwich to the taxi driver. Say brotherly love. That's right. Brotherly love. And the, the taxi driver who is, whose name has faded into history, not remembered, although he's maybe, he's the one to thank. He strongly, said, strongly disagree. He said, this is a, this is a great sandwich. You ought to stop making hot dogs and start making these. To me, that's not the important contribution. Really? Pat made the sandwich. Yeah, but if Some it, yokel showing up and be like, hey, hey, this is good. If it, if it hadn't been for the taxi driver, don't you think Pat would have just gone back to cooking hot dogs the next day? Maybe, but what if the sandwich was really delicious? You know, he's going to keep eating them. If this, is, this is natural selection. If it's better than a hot dog, it's going to win. This is the thing, though. You can never properly know yeah. the effect you have on the world in your own lifetime. That taxi driver got in his cab and he went back to his problems. He's making a living. He's trying to put his own kids through school. He doesn't realize, oh, I set in motion a chain of events that would one day result in the Omnibus Project putting me and the cheese sandwich that, that I popularized 
into, into a permanent time capsule. Into a permanent time capsule. I, I often do have the feeling, I wish I was just confident when my work was good and when it was not, but I often do have the feeling of not knowing when an idea is a winner until someone says, that's a good idea. So, okay, sometimes I do know, I, I will say that. But right. often it helps to have somebody be like, no, that's the idea right there. Right. So like, maybe I do need a nameless cab driver in my life. Today when you brought me a small bucket of chocolate chip cookies that your wife made. As I often do. As you too infrequently do. <laughs> I said, this is a great idea. You should do this every time. This is actually, this is the... the this, <laughs> I like how your idea is for is me the, to bring you free cookies. This is the new plan. Your <laughs> wife's cookies make it over here to me sometimes because they're delicious and I don't have cookies in my life. And so you're saying, really, the hero here is you for thinking of bringing the cookies here. The hero... I mean, good, good job making yeah. the cookies, Ken's wife, but... Yeah. The real hero here. Mindy makes a great cookie. You are coming here anyway. You have too many cookies at your house. I know. Apparently, I've been there. Huge cookie <laughs> surplus. Anyway, so Pat agrees and they start making steak sandwiches. And in 1940, they does, open. Does it already have the cheese? Do we know nope, this? Nope. There's oh, okay. no cheese in Sorry, it. Sorry. I did not mean to, to spoil your big reveal. It's just a steak sandwich at this point with onions, with or without onions. In 1940, they open Pat's King of Steaks which is like a uh, pie-shaped restaurant. In, hold, hold on. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> is the pie on its side or is it lying down? I know, it gets so confusing. Because I do miss the, I never lived in the era when the restaurant was shaped like the food it was, and, I, and I'm, I'm sad about that. Yeah. But in this case, is it a pie on its side? No, it's because it's, a, it, it's at an intersection of a few oh, streets I that see. are, It's a weird know, five-way intersection. It's a five-way intersection. It's like the shape of a trivial pursuit wedge. Right. And put so, it in the language I can understand, John. So yeah, it's a restaurant that's kind of like uh, it's yeah, it's shaped like a tri like Trivial Pursuit, like a three sided die. I'm uh, with you at the uh, at the intersection of Ninth Street and Passyunk Street in Philadelphia. Passyunk, Passyunk, and I think the story was that he was selling them from the cart, and then the owner of the building across the street from where the cart was parked invited them in on a, on a cold rainy day and said, you know, why don't you make your steaks inside and you can sell them in the bar or whatever. And mm -hmm. then gradually the steaks took over the bar and pretty soon they took over the building. Uh, and that became the place to, uh, it was the working class sandwich joint of the neighborhood. And they used a certain kind of roll that was also made in Philadelphia by a company called the Amoroso Bakery, which had actually started in New Jersey and Camden across the river. There's a lot of, I wouldn't say that they were sister cities, but Camden is very integrated into the Philadelphia culture and economy. And so Amoroso's Bakery makes this sort of salted French roll. Mm -hmm. It becomes integral to the sandwich. And then the true innovation, the thing that puts it into outer space of sandwich is they had a manager that worked there at the sandwich shop whose name was Cocky Joe. Cocky Joe. Cocky Joe. And Cocky Joe was a, was a drunk. Cocky Joe was a bad manager and a pain in the ass. Was he cocky about it? He was, he was super like, hey, cocky. Hey, buddy, I'm a drunk. He was. I'll drink more than you. At that time, you could be a cocky drunk and there was a place for you in the culture. Now- Cocky drunks are kind of shunned. Yeah, it's sad. It's yeah. just, um, we'll, we'll have an intervention when he gets a little less cocky. But Cocky Joe did nothing except 
one thing, which was he put cheese on the sandwich. Do you think, is it one of these stories where it's an accident? Because I love food stories where it's an accident. I don't see how putting cheese on a thing could be an act. I mean, maybe he was walking through the store with a bunch of cheese. And he's stumbling, he's an alcoholic. And whoa, Whoa. there there goes the... It's kind of a new thing. We don't, uh, we don't put steak on cheese. We don't put cheese on steak much. I mean, today in a post cheesesteak world, you got your cheeseburger. Right. There are places in which beef and cheese are combined. Um, it's not kosher. Hiroshki, maybe. It's not, it's certainly not kosher. You lose your kosherness right away. Well, think about this. It, uh, my put- wife, by the way, used to teach at the Jewish preschool mm-hmm. in Salt Lake City where we lived. And they had a cheeseburger on the lunch menu, but they would give, well, they didn't have a cheeseburger, menu, but they would give you a hamburger and you could go down further in line and get a piece of cheese. So they wouldn't you, do it, but right. if you wanted you, to, you could break uh, Talmudic law on your own tray. <laughs> to, to preschooler. But, <laughs> but they were not going to do it. This is on your head. Uh, well, think about, do you put cheese on chicken? No, I can't think of, wait. Chicken there, and cheese? I mean, you could have like a, some gross casserole that's based on a Campbell's uh, cream of cheese. Cream of what chicken. Do, what do we call that soup? Right. Cream of chicken soup. Right, but then you put the cheese soup into it. Sometimes you put chicken chunks in. Uh, I don't know. No. Uh, if you went to like Wendy's and got a grilled chicken sandwich, would you put Swiss cheese on it? Nowadays, yes. Yes, but chicken and cheese, but when you say it together, it doesn't really sound super appetizing, does it? It sounds alliterative, but no, you're not like, the side dish for chicken is cheese. Now, what about- Back then, people used to put cheese on one thing, apple pie. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, 100% of Americans' cheese went on apple pie. Do you put cheese on fish? Oh, uh, you know, there was a place by our house that was serving this seafood pasta and within a real cheesy sauce. Yeah. So it would be like shrimp and cheese. Yeah. And I realized, no, there's a reason we mostly don't do that. But you do have like seafood Alfredo. That's true. People it's eat- a, a creamy sauce is creamy, okay. Creamy, cream But cheese sauce. is very salty and strong and seafood's a delicate flavor. I think the thing about beef is it's got a robust flavor. It can- it can hold up to salty, pungent cheese. But somehow the cheesification of American food, like we add a lot of cheese. There are whole ad campaigns about how much cheesier these corn chips are than the, they used to be. Right. Six months ago, these were a little less cheesy. Now they're extremely cheesy. There is a snack food that advertises itself as the cheesiest. Is it Lucky Charms? No. Is it Triscuits? No. Is it Cheetos? Mm, yes. Ugh. Isn't it? Or is it yeah. Cheez-Its? There's, there's a cracker called Cheez-Its. There is. I don't think other cultures put cheese on things as much as they eat cheese as a separate food, right? If you go to a European country, you will eat some cheese. Before, yeah, it, it's its own course. But you don't just put cheese on everything like we do. I wonder if they think it's weird. Like they, we took a course of the, of the menu and when, then we just pour it. It would be like if taking the soup course. And then just pouring the soup all over everything, the sandwich, the fish. And you know what? I actually did that the other day. <laughs> I was, what kind of soup? No, I was in a sky lounge in some airport and they had all the different foods arranged, you know, like here's the soup, here's the, the these different courses. And I got their sort of biggest bowl and I just, I said, all these things just belong together. These are just elements of a stew that you didn't think to make yet. Is this after you took the Ambien? <laughs> I, was, I was a couple Ambien in to a long day of flying. And I just put it all in one plate and I, I was enormously more gratified. 
I think that that's an American impulse and it might be – It's because we're a melting pot. It might be that cocky Joe did it. <laughs> he, he set the ball in motion. We do but, have a very cheese-centric culture. I mean in our, in our era, powered by the fact that the government subsidizes the production of that's right. cheese and – so there's a whole industry trying to figure out new things to put more cheese on. And that's a big part of it. And that plays into our story. Oh, is that right? So the first cheese to go on a cheesesteak sandwich was provolone. Uh, to this day, not, a, not an uncontroversial choice. Right. Like and if you go to Philadelphia, they might put provolone on your cheesesteak. Provolone is the, the cheese of discernment for a cheesesteak sandwich. It's and little, and you, can picture, you can picture Cocky Joe walking through the, the restaurant drunk, carrying a big stack of provolone. He trips. Whoops. And a provolone falls on the sandwich and all of a sudden history was made. You got your chocolate's in my peanut butter. No, your peanut butter's on my chocolate. But by the mid-50s, the Kraft Corporation was working to- Working overtime. Uh, working overtime to make cheese foods, uh, cheese that was shelf-stable, cheese that you could mass-produce, cheese that had a low melting temperature- what we think of as government cheese, cheese that was a shelf-stable food that you could you could feed a lot of people with and, and it was cheap to manufacture. A lot of research like this going on at the time because, you know, then it be, can become a, a – you can be a military contractor. That's right. That's right. You yeah. could send it around the world as part of food aid. Yeah. And in this process of working on cheese that could be – that had these characteristics, Kraft invented a product called Cheese Whiz. And Kraft didn't spell it C-H-E-E-S-E, -E -E, whiz. They spelled it C-H-E-E-Z. Is it it's still spelled, is that still spelled like that or not? Yes. yes? It's, because, got, it's got two Zs today? Because cheese whiz had only a little bit of cheese in it. It had a lot of things that tasted and smelled sort of like cheese. But it was really a kind of creation. And it's not that it's not made of milk products or that it isn't a food. But there are, <laughs> uh, there are things that make a milk product cheese. And that set of contingencies is not, is not present. I'm looking at the so ingredients list now. Whey, milk, canola oil. Yeah. And it very quickly gets into the weeds of six-syllable foods. Maltodextrin, sodium yes. phosphate. Whey protein concentrate. So it's a way to approximate a cheese-like experience. It's smooth, so it's easy to serve and pour. Right. Um, and it, uh, you don't have to refrigerate a jar of cheese Whiz, I believe. Nope. And it's probably much cheaper to produce. You don't have to age anything. You can form it into 50-pound blocks. You can build a home out of it. <laughs> and uh, also spelling it with a Z makes the uh, intellectual property stronger, right. by the way. Like cheese with an S-E is a descriptive product that anybody can think of. But once some marketing whiz, uh, no pun intended, puts a Z on cheese, that's more craft-centric. That put the Z on cheese. <laughs> As we used to say. Uh, there's a, there are a lot of food scientists in the world who are working on ways to make foods that don't need to be refrigerated, ways to make foods that, that have low melting temperatures or that are smooth and creamy or that don't coagulate. Um, That's what I look for in my food. Xanthan gum, Does for instance, coagulate, I will is, say. Xanthan gum is an industrial food product that was invented in the mid-60s, actually by a food scientist by the name of Aline Jeans. And um, so xanthan gum and its more natural food friend, carrageenan, which you see in a lot of this type of stuff, they're additives that sort of add viscosity to 
what would be runny foods. They take the place of gelatin. Uh, Carrageenan is actually made from like seaweed, but like a moss that grows in the ocean. And it's, it's an ancient uh, food stabilizer. Xanthan gum is a more modern industrial one. And it simulates a more kind of old-fashioned homemade food experience. If the food was actually made with real food, it, it would have some kind of, you know, a real cheese is thick. Yeah. And so Xanthan so, gum, why? So the the rise of Cheese Whiz, uh, Cheese Whiz arrived on the scene and because Philadelphia is is a big cheese-consuming town, they have their own cream cheese, as you mentioned before. They're Italians. They They're sp- Italians. They, they sprinkle cheese on stuff. A guy will come around and ask if you want cheese sprinkled on your stuff. Uh, cheese Whiz ended up in Pat's Steaks. Um, like instead of provolone to cut costs? No, there were. now you had an option, provolone uh, or Cheese Whiz. Or Whiz. Because the way to make a, a cheese steak, you put the sliced, thin sliced ribeye on the grill. You either put onions in it or not, depending on whether you want them with onions or not, or as they say, wit or wit out. Oh, that's what you say in line. And then you- Well, let me ask you this, a little parenthetical. What about peppers? Is that a separate thing if you have a pepper steak or- uh, Peppers are like a later addition to the recipe. Okay. Um, Is that uh, optional? Like would people in Philadelphia be mad at me if I wanted peppers on a cheesesteak? There are there, there are so many purists and cheesesteaks are a thing that you can get very wrong and we'll see that that can have disastrous effects. If you go into- Katz's Deli in New York and order a pastrami sandwich and ask them to put mayonnaise or (laughs) cheese on it, they will do it, but they will scorn you literally to death. You won't enjoy the sandwich because there will be so much scorn on it. They will sick a golem on your family. Yeah. Well, no, the the guys that are making the sandwich are all from the Dominican Republic, so they don't have powers (laughs) to animate golems. Uh, but they will, they, they can scorn you for putting mayonnaise on a pastrami sandwich. Is there not a supervisor who can handle the golem problem? <laughs> the last time I saw an actual Jewish person working at Katz's Deli was in the early 90s. I think maybe. And he had a Jews for Jesus t-shirt. <laughs> maybe every once in a while, you know, somebody walks through. I mean, the, the clientele obviously is largely, not largely Jewish. Okay. So peppers are possible, but not essential. Well, so. Yeah, originally it was onions and not caramelized, like not fried onions all the way to being soft. They're they're meant to still they're have a little crunchy, bit. They're kind of crunchy like on a hot dog. Yeah. Mm. And then you put the provolone on top of the meat while it's on the grill, let it melt just from the heat of the contact, and then you put a, a big, what, spatula? What are, what are those things called? Yeah, a big sure. spatula underneath it and put the bread on top of it scoop it all together, and then flip it over, and there's your sandwich. But with Cheese Whiz, you can get a much more melted cheese experience, a cheese that permeates the whole sandwich. You can cook the sandwich as usual, flip it over into the bread, and then just fill it with cheese. And it's a and it's a very piquant cheese as well. The production line is easier because you can just drizzle on the cheese at the end. Right. You don't have to worry about melting. Also within the canon is uh, you can use like American sharp, basically like those American cheese squares. uh, Like like, you'd have on a cheeseburger. Yeah, like white colored American sharp cheese. And these play such a large role in the cheesesteak construction and the cheesesteak universe. Community. That to this day, the city of Philadelphia accounts for one quarter of all Cheese Whiz consumption. The craft company sells 25% of its Cheese Whiz just within the city of Philadelphia. And it's almost all going on cheese sticks. Uh, well, I'm, I'm guessing 98%. And 50% 
of Kraft's American white cheese slices are sold within Philadelphia city limits. And those aren't even, I saw some survey where Philadelphians were asked what the correct cheese is. And to this day, provolone is more popular than American or, or Wiz. And yet they're all doing big business. Apparently they're all going like gangbusters. There are a lot of, there are a lot more uses for provolone, I guess. I, when I get a cheesesteak sandwich, I get provolone. I don't, cheese Wiz is too, it has <laughs> too, like too many, un, too, no, too many uncomfortable memories with my, uh, from my childhood when my mother was, uh, newly divorced, very poor, and we were eating government cheese. I don't. I don't you need don't need those any, memories in your need, sandwich. I don't need it. No. I am very suspicious of processed foods like that, and maybe I shouldn't be because I'm sure they've been engineered to taste great, or they would change the recipe. But I always do find myself. It's a culture-wide problem. There's hardly any fast food chains left in the city limits of Seattle because rents are high, and people would rather go pay 13 bucks for a fancy schmancy burger. Right. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Well, so the cheesesteak story of uh, Philadelphia starts to, starts to get more and more contentious as time goes on, because of course it's a, it's a rough and tumble food in a rough and tumble city and our natural inclination to take sides, to become part of a team, to think that your team is better than others, your neighborhood is better than others. The cheesesteak sandwich starts to get roped into and wrapped up in neighborhood rivalries. There's a a steak restaurant called Jim's Steaks, which is across town. Uh, Not like a competitor for daily business because these are still restaurants that are serving the community that are immediately yeah, around a different them. part of town. But the, but the idea that, that your cheesesteak was a symbol of your neighborhood was introduced a long time before. Um, and Jim's steaks were sort of rivals to Pat's steaks in this sort of burgeoning steak culture, but it hadn't yet gone viral, caught fire nationwide. And it wasn't until this moment in time, which we've been foreshadowing for the whole, through the whole show, the U.S. Bicentennial, 1976. Oh, is that what puts cheesesteak on the national stage? Two things happened. One of them was all our national attention was turned to Philadelphia because we were celebrating a lot of events that happened there and your favorite movie, Rocky. And in the course of the film Rocky, his manager, Tony Gazzo, takes him to get a cheesesteak sandwich at Pat's. Oh, they go to Pat's. Okay. And at the time, uh, Pat retold the story. Stallone showed up, you know, a, a, an unknown, said, we want to make a movie here. 
we want to film at Pat's, but we're going to have to close you down. And Pat said, well, if we're going to be closed for a day while you make your movie, you have to pay me the amount of money that I would have made selling cheesesteaks today. And Stallone agreed, you know, bought him out for a day and they filmed at Pat's. Fair is fair. Fair is fair. Well, backtracking a little bit, in 1966, 10 years before, a guy by the name of Joey Vento opened a cheesesteak restaurant across the street from Pat's. Well, that's kind of a shot across his bow, if Pat's is kind of the legendary founder of this. Yeah, but it's a, it's still a very Italian, very dock worker-centric neighborhood. And Joey's a guy that had a legitimate claim to being a sandwich maker, too. His grandfather also was selling hot dogs from a cart. So and it would just be like seeing two coffee shops. Yeah, two coffee Nobody shops across the street. People already know that this intersection of 9th and Passyunk is where you go to get a cheesesteak, and he opens up across the street. Now, I'm sure that Pat, uh, oh, well, by this point, Pat had moved on. There was some family dispute, and Pat moved to Southern California. But Pat's restaurant was being run by Frank Olivieri, who is Pat's nephew. Hmm. And Joey Vento shows up, opens Gino's, starts selling cheesesteaks. Frank, I'm sure, you know, scoffs at the competitor, but they're they're sort of across the street from one, of the, one another, friendly competitors, until Rocky. And when Rocky goes to Pat's and all this attention, this national attention is suddenly directed at Philadelphia, Philadelphia culture, the cheesesteak sandwich as part of Philadelphia culture, Joey Vento decides that he needs to step up his marketing a little bit and try to direct some of the traffic that's showing up at Pat's over across the street to Gino's. So Gino's starts to have big signs that say things like, they invented the cheesesteak, but we perfected it. Or they're the king of cheesesteaks, but we're the ace of cheesesteaks, and ace beats kings. This was um, kind of uncommon. You see it a lot today, but uh, just 20 or 30 years ago, it was very rare for advertising to mention the competitor. Like it was always a big deal when Pepsi would actually show a Coke in their commercial or, you know, nowadays all these brands are just fighting on Twitter all the time. Like I'm sure McDonald's has tweeted about Burger King three times in the last 10 minutes. But before it was always like, no, it's not gentlemanly to mention your competition. Right. And that so was- So Geno's is really going for the jugular. That was what was so, so fun about Geno's. Joey was a real showman and he made it very personal. And the- Olivieri's were able to kind of keep some some semblance of the high ground and deny that right. that it was really affecting them. And, you know, they would claim like, well, we sell 10 cheesesteaks to every one that he sells. So it's not really that big right. of a deal. Coke doesn't have to mention Pepsi. You know, Avis is the only one that has to mention hers. Joey erected big neon signs. He made Geno's look like a a Times Square style, like really flashy, blingy place. Pat's was more subdued, you know, looked like what it is, a, a sort of um, hundred year old. It's a lunch counter. Uh, lunch counter. Yeah. Uh, but the rivalry really appealed to people as rivalries do. And it became a kind of Philadelphia touchstone that you would either have a preference or that when you went down to cheesesteak corner, you would get one of each. Oh, one of each. And the first, and they're enormous sandwiches. The first time I went down to Pat's, I got a Pat's. Uh, I ordered it wrong, which is, you know, immediately like. Is, is it a soup Nazi thing where you have to say, 
one whiz yeah, went out or Yeah, whatever. you're meant to say it in, in a clipped patois. Uh, and I was just like, I want a cheesesteak sandwich with provolone. I do not understand your local your local ways, and I will not a- ask for this in in. Uh, and with you, it's probably French. more like I refuse to count out <laughs> your weird local customs. Here's what I want, uh, and they made me a sandwich, and I ate it, and it was great. But it was not the first cheesesteak sandwich I ever had was in Rutgers in New Jersey, and it was the closest at that point I'd ever been to Philadelphia. And there was a cheesesteak sandwich on a, at a stand and I ordered it and I was really disappointed because coming from the West, having never had a cheesesteak sandwich, but having heard of one, I imagined it being just ambrosial, like steak and cheese in a sandwich. I love all three of those things. This is going to be like a, this is going to be a transformative meal for me. And what it is, is it's a burned salty, like grease pile in a bun. It is often very greasy. Does and it have to be? It doesn't thing have is to it's be. It's not meant to be. Yeah. In fact, the, the, one of the defining characteristics of a properly made cheesesteak is that it's, there's not a ton of oil involved in the process, but you, you often see them where they're, you know, they're made in a way that, uh, where they're a total gut bomb. But I went and had a Pat's and then went across the street and had a Gino's and eating two full-size cheesesteak sandwiches within the space of a half an hour, it's a truly bad thing to do to yourself. It's a, it created in me. Um, you must have known. Oh, absolutely. I was thrilled to have, I was thrilled to then get back into the tour bus and inflict my agony on everyone else in the truck for the, you know, or in the bus for the rest of the night. Uh, but this war escalated until it was the subject of magazine profiles and television interviews. It was something that started to characterize the city of Philadelphia. And Philadelphians would have to have a preference. It wasn't good enough to just go where the line was shorter. And both the proprietors uh, of Geno's and Pat's, you know, they're, they're clever and, you know, wry and had lots and lots of great lines about one another, about who who made the better sandwich, how the other guy was a fake and a fraud. And was it kayfabe, like uh, in wrestling ter- parlance? Like, wha- did they actually get along and were they doing a bit? Or did they genuinely, was it a real war? It was only revealed many years later. Like, they, they appeared on uh, the Dr. Phil program in 1999. Dr. Phil was trying to resolve this bitter feud and uh, it's like sending Dennis Rodman to North Korea <laughs> and uh, and apparently they uh, they came on the show they tried one another's sandwiches for the first time ever and both unscripted spontaneously spit out their first bite as inedible <laughs> um, but it was years later that uh, after the old guard died that it was revealed that they had been friends all along and in fact, Family members of both operations lived in the same building in <laughs> Philadelphia. So they were not only uh, they were not only friends, like drinking friends. Their their wives were friends, but they lived together in the same building. So the feud was revealed to be just a marketing stunt. Wow! And it kind of I guess a rising tide lifts all cheesesteaks. Well, I think what it really the revelation that it was a fraud 
actually put a lot of magazine writers out of business because <laughs> it was just one one fewer thing that you could write a, a, a like a think piece. Two on. nearby restaurants get along fine and serve similar food. Well, was there a uh, is there a political difference between the two shops? Because I know lots of media coverage about Gino's recently, or you know, in the last ten years or so, has centered on the legacy of Joey Vento. Right. He, uh, you know, he was a typical not super sensitive Italian guy of his generation. He passed away and left <laughs> left the restaurant to his like nice gay son, who is now left with all these you know speak English dickhead signs or whatever. So he did. Uh... Joey did put up uh, a sign in the store that said, if you're ordering, and it had, predictably, it had a, an eagle and an American flag flying in the background. Uh, and it said, when ordering your sandwich, speak English. And when challenged on this by the local media, he said, if you come up and order in a language other than English, you're just going to get a bun with cheese whiz on it. <laughs> that's the that's the worst thing anyone has ever done to immigrants, and we're living in the era of ice. And his, you know, his, his take on it was that he was the descendant of immigrants, and they came to America, and they had to learn English. So therefore, he was just he was just helping more recent uh, immigrants to the country assimilate as his family had done. The, was, there was another sign that said, "Press one for English, press two for deportation." Yeah. Seems what, a little much. What, what had happened? <laughs> I would never press two, honestly. <laughs> what happened was in that area, that Italian part of Philadelphia, gradually it became less and less Italian and, and more and more an immigrant neighborhood and, and specifically like people coming from Mexico and Central America. So he was like every uh, like every great immigrant story. At a certain point, you turn your <laughs> you turn your crosshairs on the, the the new guys. Here's the year before which it was okay to be an immigrant, and it was and it became a civil rights issue in Philadelphia, and it was taken before their civil rights uh, commission. Oh, like whether this signage is is in viol a violation of some kind of municipal law. That's right, and huh. it was and it was a news storm there in Philadelphia, and it and it was eventually. They decided that they couldn't enforce it as a civil rights violation. And he was adamant that the sign would stay up regardless. You know, he, this was the hill he wanted to die on, this <laughs> speak English sign. Um, but then when the Democratic uh, Convention came to Philadelphia. 20, in, 2016. Yeah, or 2014. So it I bet it was divisible by four. Yeah, twenty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it was the. I think it was the year of Trump. So immigration is increasingly a hot button issue and a signifier for a certain kind of. Uh, you know, it's kind of a loyalty oath. Right. What, this this sign just very quietly went away. Wasn't there one day, and nobody made a big stink about it. And Joey had passed away, but it was his son who was who said, "Well, Dad always said on his deathbed, you know, the main thing he wanted was to <laughs> signage that insulted Mexicans, and uh, I don't feel like I can." But I guess in the face of Losing DNC business, they so took the sign went down. Joey actually named his son Gino um, after the shop. After the shop, <gasps> wow! How'd you like to be named after a, a cheesesteak shop? Because yeah, uh, I think he wanted it to be called Joey's, and he couldn't name it Joey's because there was a Joey's already, oh. and he tried to name it Gino's G I N O, and there was a Gino's, so he named it G E N O, and then named his son Gino's. I just assumed the shop was named for the son. No, nope. no, the other way around. <laughs> But the cheesesteak war, before it was revealed to be fake, uh, it actually took position on the national stage. In 2004, during the presidential election, presidents had started to make 
or, or candidates had started to make a pilgrimage to the cheesesteak shops in order to win the favor of Philadelphians. This happens everywhere. And like the, 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 the politicians try to show up at the local yeah. spot. So because they know their picture will stay up. Hey, he knew, he knew to go to this donut place or diner or whatever. When Bill Clinton went by, he was there with a, with the local congressman and the congressman gave him all the coaching, like don't sit down to eat the sandwich. You have to stand up. You have to tuck your tie into your shirt. You have to lean forward. There's a certain posture that a local takes when biting into the, you can't eat it with a knife and fork. Teaching Bill Clinton how to eat fast food seems like Coles to Newcastle. Right. It does. But, but, uh, but in this case, like Clinton made a point to describe it later during a big fundraising speech he gave where he was like, I went to the cheesesteak place and they <laughs> taught me how to eat it and you got to lean forward. And it became like a, a another one of his sort of good old boy stop buys. That's a solid Bill Clinton. Thanks very much. Uh, but then they, in 2004, during the campaign between George Walker Bush, uh, G.W. Bush and John Kerry, that's a guy who won't know how to eat a cheesesteak, I'll wager. And here was the problem. George Bush showed up and ordered it in the proper parlance and ate it like the good old boy that he purported to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but John Kerry was not – his handlers did not prep him for this event. <laughs> and he – Like the one thing I can imagine about John Kerry is that he does not know how to order and eat a cheesesteak. And he ordered it with Swiss cheese – which they even have that on the menu. They don't have. And <laughs> and the whole and it was just like ordering mayonnaise on your pastrami sandwich at Katz's. Like everyone standing around went, Oh, major gaff. And then he proceeded to he ended up doing it all wrong. He ended up having lettuce and tomato on it. He sat down. <laughs> Wait, he sat down to eat it. I think he wanted it on a plate. Like all these things that John Kerry did that really fed in to the narrative that he was an effete Northeastern rich guy out of touch with the regular. Are we thinking he might have won Ohio and thereby the presidency if he had just ordered his damn cheesesteak right? Well, it became a major news story. And pundits in the region said, well, he just lost all of Pennsylvania because he proved that he isn't a man of the people. And George Bush, who's grew up in Kennebunkport with a, <laughs> with a silver football helmet on, uh, is, was apparently because he ordered it wit whiz. It, it was, it further cemented his position as like America's drunk nephew. That was always a political dichotomy you could count on. And now it's really turned on its head by the fact that, um, the biggest kicking rural idiots in America just want this guy who eats pizza with a knife and fork. Right. Uh, Apparently, Trump also has eaten a cheesesteak with a knife and fork. Ooh. But no one cares because making America great again. Yeah. But Kerry, this was like Dukakis driving the tank. <laughs> Kerry's failure to navigate all the tricks, the tricks and turns of the Philadelphia cheesesteak cost him the election. I mean, the rock and roller cola wars were tough to live through, but at least they never, you know, changed who was in the White House. And that concludes the Cheesesteak War. Entry 211.PR2306, certificate number 6594, in the omnibus. Now, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, we've, we assume that cheesesteaks will still exist. The historical arc of the universe does appear to bend toward cheese. Yes. But hopefully not social media. But in our day, uh, you could 
track of the Omnibus's uh, ongoing cataloging of all cultural knowledge at Omnibus Project on any social media network you could think of. Uh, individually, I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. John was at John Roderick on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we uh, disliked Facebook intensely, but we uh, utilized it to carve out the Futurelings group where contemporary listeners of the show could uh, discuss uh, mail trucks and seeing mail trucks on their street or stink bugs in their shower. We stink bugs in my shower. John Denver. Make me happy. Mm -hmm. Me too. Uh, People could send us digital communication using email at our new email ad address, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. I think back in the early days of the Omnibus, we were omnibusproject at gmail.com, but yeah. in the interim, somebody has snapped that up. And But bad news for them, we are now the genos of the... Are you sure we don't own it? We just forgot the... Uh, didn't, didn't we have it and we just forgot the password? I think if you leave them abandoned, they get reused maybe. I did not recognize the re any of the recovery information, which makes me think omnibusproject at gmail.com has been snapped up by squatters. Bummer. We're going to extort millions of dollars out of us for it. Boo them. But we'll be the genos of this battle. We are the omnibusproject at gmail.com. Um, people who had physical artifacts to email us would take advantage of... Uh, of any kind of messenger or courier service to get them to the Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Today we got a copy of the Dialogues of Plato from a woman who had stolen it from a Reed College library in 1986. Thank you so much for that. And after we did our show about extremely overdue library books, she decided to get it off her conscience by making it our problem. Yeah. Now we own the stolen loot. Next time you're in Portland, are you going to try to return it? No, you know, I have like seven different gift certificates for a free dozen donuts and uh, Powell's books. I mean, I have every time I do something, somebody gives me a, a gift certificate for something in Portland. And every time I go, I forget. I have a manila envelope with $40,000 worth of free from Portland. I, I never remember to take it. I have a card from Waffle Window that will get me a free wa waffle next time I'm in Portland, and I always forget it. But here's what you can do. You can put all those in your copy of the Dialogues of Plato. Oh. And then go to Reed College and trade it for five micro dots of acid. That's right. You can sit in the train on the way down to Portland, like thinking over Plato's Symposium and uh, preparing yourself for all your free stuff. I shall. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. You may have, uh, you may have the perspective to know that our civilization drowned in cheese. <laughs> the, our magnetic poles flipped and... People lost their minds and started putting cheese on fish. Pretty soon, we were we were uh, struggling to reach the surface. Uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>